great honor and a great sense of thankfulness to Scott Brown. So there's nowhere in the world where I can walk into a room and have the same feelings that I have when I walk into here. It's not because of the room, it's because of the roomies. Uh, it's because of you. There are souls in this room that represent um, the most cherished relationships in my life, some of the best times in my life. Uh, there are people in this room who are a part of my and my wife's spiritual formation. And uh, I am always overwhelmed. I hope you know I'm not being gratuitous when I say that. I probably say it to you every year when I come, but I'm so delighted to be with you. It's a really a simcha every time, a time of rejoicing. Some of these relationships are more than a quarter century. Um, I think, Sandra, except for my wife, I think I've known you longer. It was over 30 years ago, I think, in Paul Wilbur's basement. We were celebrating your 17th birthday. <laughs> Do the math. She looks great for 47. <laughs> you know that. So, um, wow. Now, at the count of three, a big hearty mazel tov. One, two, three. Thank you so much. I'm guessing you're congratulating me because on this month, in this month, June 2018, this is my 30th anniversary as a worker in the field of Jewish evangelism. And uh, I remember actually this month, June 1988, when I started with ABMJ, which evolved into Chosen People Ministries, uh, I started my career, yes, by putting a tie on, going into my office in the basement of our house, sitting by the phone and waiting for Jewish people in Montgomery County to call me and ask, what must I do to be saved? It was a very poor strategy. Uh, happily, I grew up, uh, largely thanks to the, to the ministries of greater men and women in my life, people like Manny Brotman, people like Sam Nadler, others who poured so much wisdom and experience into my life, and we're a little bit more effective now than we were 30 years ago. So, at the count of one, two, three, another mazel tov. One, two, three. Thank you so much. I'm guessing you're congratulating me because this is also the 10th anniversary of our New Zealand venture. Ten years ago, uh, we said goodbye to you. Some of you don't remember that because um, some of you weren't born and some of you weren't here, but 10 years ago, we, we launched out to work in New Zealand. Now, it was just Margie and me at that time. We now have a staff of 12, and we actually cover the entire country of New Zealand, both North and South Islands. Very, very exciting. So what I'm going to do right now, if we can get that PowerPoint up, I'm going to give you a quick, quick update, okay, on what's going on in New Zealand. All right, so you've seen that picture before. Now, it's been a few years since I showed you these pretty pictures, which you're not seeing. Um, you know that young Israelis are flooding into New Zealand, largely because of the beauty um, it's because uh, after their army service, they are really looking for an overseas experience. New Zealand provides that. Um, oh, so I am, is this working now? Am I doing this myself? Oh, I'm going backwards, aren't I? Well, at least you know that young Israelis are flooding into Middle Earth. Some people accuse me of showing these to tempt you, to tempt you to come to New Zealand. And the people who are making those accusations are absolutely correct. I am doing everything I can to tempt you to come here. Now, the pictures you're seeing are what you're going to see throughout the South Island. And the reason I'm showing you also is to help you understand that just as you are inspired by these pictures right now, the people who are coming, the Israelis by the thousands, 
other international tourists by the millions. 3.7 million international tourists come. You can stop right there. 3.7 million international tourists come every year. And so our ministry, of course, is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Uh, it's an amazing opportunity because this kind of beauty opens up hearts. Next slide. Now, you remember that we have three facilities where we are offering free accommodation to Israelis in New Zealand. Let me say that again. Free accommodation to Israelis in New Zealand. Now, New Zealand is very, very expensive. Some of you have come, and some of you know it emptied your wallet really fast. So when we're offering free accommodation to sort of poor, starving young Israelis, <laughs> it's a quite a, dr a draw. So those are our three locations. I'll show you the three places next. That's the Zula Lodge in Wanaka, next. That's the Yellow House, so-called because it's a yellow house. Next, that's our wilderness campground where Margie and I have lived for 10 years. So these three facilities, next, have been used basically to house young Israelis, two of them exclusively for Israelis, for no one else. The campground is open to many more people. But what you're seeing here are just a few pictures of the fun and the excitement of having young Israelis coming in all the time. These are, these are typical pictures in the Zula Lodge and the Yellow House where you'll see our workers who are Hebrew-speaking and some non-Hebrew-speaking born-again believers who are sharing the good news of Messiah with our Israeli guests day after day, after month, after year. Next. That's a, a Shabbat service where we're talking about the Lord of the Sabbath, Yeshua HaMashiach. Matan is sharing in Hebrew. Next. Now, give it one more click there. There you go. That little green arrow is showing Tiano. Now, Tiano is, next slide, the strategic bullseye for Jewish evangelism in New Zealand. Now, I say that because Tiano is at the gateway to Fiordland. Next slide. Fiordland is this remarkable, it's the soul of Middle Earth. It is what you see when you look at uh, Lord of the Rings and, and the Chronicles of Narnia. Next uh, this is the kind of stuff you'll see in Fiordland, and this is also the place, next, where the greatest of the great walks are found. The great walks, there are nine great walks in New Zealand. They're called that because they are the greatest walks in the world. Next. So uh, give it a couple more clicks. Uh, Israelis love these great walks, and Tianau is the place where, well, it's the gateway to these great walks. So they're lingering there for up to a week, two weeks at a time, before and after their great walks. It is the perfect place to have a facility uh, in New Zealand for Israelis. Now, we have three. Uh, we're, we're paring down to two, and we want to add one more in Tiano. Next slide. Now, we've been waiting for God to open something up, and it appears that it has opened up. I'm appealing to you who are praying saints. I know that there are some here who are true warriors in prayer. I'm begging you to be praying with us and for us. This is a motor home and caravan park only a few minutes outside of Tiano. Next. There's a picture of it. It is the perfect facility. If you can imagine this place filled with Israelis. Now, Israelis, when they come to New Zealand, they buy a van, a cheap Japanese van in Auckland or Christchurch. They fit it out with a bed, and they use, that's their home. They don't really need accommodation. They need a place to park. So when they come down to Tiano, they're looking for a place to park. We have 60 slots right there. And uh, we have uh, next, next, uh, this is a residence home for the resident managers and our volunteers. Next. And we don't own this place yet. We want to. Uh, you'll see that there's a laundry room. There's a big lounge, big communal kitchen. Next. 
<coughs> the necessary laundry room and showers and bathrooms, all the stuff we need to provide a place for young Israelis lingering in Teano. Next. So what we've discovered, click it a couple times, that our ministry really is mostly in the communal areas. If you would click it just two more times, please. So when we're doing ministry, we're doing it in the communal areas of our facilities and, of course, on the trails. Now, the reason this place is perfect for us strategically, next slide, is because it provides both. It provides perfect communal areas and it provides the Great Walks, which are literally just minutes away from this facility. It is the perfect facility. We do not own it. We want to own it. Next slide. Now, we've already, God has already provided some really great stuff. Give it two clicks, if you would. First of all, our resident managers, one more click. Our resident managers have not even come to New Zealand yet, but they know, we know that God has called them to this work. This is, uh, you, you recognize them, Brendan and Katie Maynard. They're in Chicago right now raising funds to come out to New Zealand. We believe they're going to be our resident managers. We have the experience. We have um, the resources. We don't have the funds. We have about 10% of the funds. So that's what we're waiting for. That's what we're asking God for. Next slide. So remember this, if you would. Just remember us in, our, in your prayers. Think of this image of this place. They can be filled with Israelis for up to seven months of the year where our staff can be sharing in these communal areas on the great walks the good news of Messiah Yeshua. Next slide. There is no shortage of Israelis. We have at least 1,300 intentional evangelistic encounters with young Israelis every single summer. Next and, of course, we're driven by the, the heart of God, whose desire and prayer is that Israel might be saved. This is all about the salvation of Israel. So please remember us in prayer. And for those of you who have that extra $100,000, I want you to give it to the building fund at Son of David. But that second 100000 comes to us. Or maybe that hundred or that ten, whatever you can give, we, could, we would appreciate your support. Thank you. I don't know if you've noticed, you probably noticed in your bulletin, that part of the Haftarah was from Micah, Micah 6, verse 8. I was so moved by how you guys knew your scriptures today. When you were shouting out your favorite scriptures, the scriptures that you felt were the most important, I leaned over to Margie and said, you know, we would never hear this in New Zealand. We would never hear. If the pastor stood up and said, hey, what, are your, what, what, what verses do you think is, are the most important? there would be this stunned silence as people would be flipping through their Bibles, excuse me, their phones <laughs> to find a verse, just something to say. The, the fact that you know your scriptures so well is so thrilling. Micah 6, 8, who can, who can say it? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I heard you. Well done. God has told us what he wants. It's pretty amazing. God has revealed what he considers good. Now, that's both exciting to me and terrifying. It's exciting because it's great to have a piece of God's mind when it comes to what he considers good and excellent, what he requires of us. And he has said much more than to do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly. He has filled his scriptures, in particular, the Proverbs and the Epistles, to tell us precisely what he considers good and excellent. That's important to me, and all the more important to me as I get older and realize this frog-in-the-kettle kind of experience that 
we're all, I think, subject to. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, recently, well, not recently anymore, it was about a year ago, uh, someone I, I love and respect dearly who's in Messianic ministry, he's in another part of the world, uh, was found to be involved in child pornography. He has disappeared from the face of the earth. I don't even know where he is. Just yesterday, I was talking to a pastor who uh, one of his co-workers was recently discovered on a very sketchy uh, page on the Internet uh, talking to young girls. Uh, he was caught. He's going to prison. Now, none of these things happened overnight. These were little frog-in-the-kettle events. These are being subject to a culture which is constantly turning up the heat, just a little at a time, a little at a time, just incremental increases where we, we, we make these tiny little compromises, just little compromises, and I'm so afraid. I, I mean, I'm being honest with you. I'm so afraid at, at this point, which I would consider the height of my life in ministry and marriage, to be subject to that kind of influence, to lean on the laurels of the past or the comfort or convenience of the present, and to let the culture turn up the heat and one day be found to be boiled alive. I don't want that. I don't want that for me or for you. Turn to Philippians chapter 1, if you would. Philippians chapter 1. We're talking today about getting a piece of God's mind regarding excellence. Now, it's amazing to me that God has actually told us what he considers excellent. It's kind of like giving us the, the answers to the test, you know? I mean, uh, Margie and I, Margie, remember Fundamentals of the Faith? In Bible school, what was interesting about that whenever test time came up? The teacher actually told us what questions were going to be on the test. And I thought, well, that's dumb. That was about the worst teacher I ever heard. No, it was brilliant because it motivated me and Margie all the more, knowing what was required of us, motivated us all the more to be prepared to provide what was required. Do you know God's standards? Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Yeshua the Messiah. Paul speaking to the believers in Philippi. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Messiah, Yom Yeshua being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Yeshua the Messiah to the glory and praise of God. <laughs> We're talking about what is excellent and whether or not we approve of those things. Now, I have to admit that excellent is one of those words the Bible uses in a way that's entirely different from the way most people use it. All right? There are lots of words like this in the Bible, words that most of us use commonly, but words which the Bible uses that are foreign to us. For ex example, joy. Joy, simcha, you know, in Hebrew. To most, joy is sentimental happiness. It's usually attached to some positive circumstance, like, you know, getting a check from <laughs> the IRS or, you know, the Redskins winning a game. Actually, that's a miracle. That's not just... <laughs> but, you know, some positive experience, you feel joy. It's generated... However, not from an external circumstance, according to the Bible, it's, it's from an internal source. Real joy has little or nothing to do with what's, what's going on externally. Faith is another one of those words. Uh, you know, the world uses the word faith 
in a popular sense, like it's kind of the last resort for people who have nothing else to lose. You know, I have faith that things will turn out right. I mean, things are really bad now, but I have faith that it'll, it'll turn out, yeah. Sort of this hope-so tranquilizer that makes you feel better while your world crashes down around you. But that's not what the Bible says about faith. Faith in the Bible is aggressive, it is powerful, it's deliberate, it's rational, it's based on facts, not fancies or false hopes. The faith of the Bible moves mountains. <laughs> it crashes armies. It, it creates its own reality. It has substance. Hey, Hebrew scholars, what does Hebrews 11.1 1 say about faith? It's, this, it's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things we can't see. In other words, faith is evidence. In heaven's courtroom, faith is never on trial. Why? Because faith is the evidence. Faith itself becomes proof. It's not some spineless alternative to courage. Faith proves your reality. Wow. And here's the point. We can't assume we understand God's meaning when we see a word in the Bible we've used thousands of times on the earth from an earthly perspective. And one such word is excellence. Now, books have been written and seminars and conferences have been produced about the pursuit of excellence. You know, have you, uh, you hear this ad nauseum businesses and colleges and uh, even churches and synagogues will have these tiresome slogans like, where excellence is a way of life and mediocrity is just a dirty word. Oh, gag me with a spoon. I mean, really, that is just, don't you get tired of those ridiculous slogans? No one's asking the right question. Do I even know what I'm pursuing when I'm pursuing excellence? Do I even understand what God approves as excellent? Do I know his standard is the question. Some of you may remember, if you go back decades, I had, a, I had a car, I had an AMC Hornet. Now, Hornet in the Bible is used as a symbol of curse. <laughs> I understand this. This car was nothing but a curse. So uh, even from the first time I owned it, I, I bought it obviously used, 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 like all of our cars. And uh, so I'm changing the oil, and I, I actually have a manual. It said 3.5 quarts of oil. Put the 3.5 quarts of oil in, put the dipstick in, and it's showing, oh, it's way overfilled. I must have done something wrong. Huh. So I drained the oil, put 3.5 quarts of oil back in, put the dipstick in, and go, it's like a quart over. Well, I found out that the previous owner of this curse had lost the approved dipstick, the standard of propriety, <laughs> and just stuck any dipstick in there. <laughs> and, and I began to think, what other dipsticks have God, has God slid into my heart and mind <laughs> that are not according to his real proper standard of excellence? You see what I'm saying? We, it's the frog in the kettle thing. We speak of excellent cars and excellent grades and excellent cigar and excellent wine. We think of gaining excellence by getting more knowledge or experience or skills. And we think we've achieved excellence when we're merely doing better than anyone else. What an excellent student. What an excellent employee. Why? Because you're performing better? That's it? This external quality? Dear ones, if that's the brand of excellence you and I are pursuing, we're chasing after the wind. Now, despite all the rhetoric about ex uh, excellence these days, 
I have a feeling that we still don't really understand excellence from God's perspective. And before asking, am I achieving excellence in my life, it's necessary to first ask, do I even approve of what God considers excellent? Now, we just read a passage from Philippians 1. The Spirit of God prays for us. Amazing, isn't it? The Spirit of God prays for us through the heart and mind of Rabbi Paul. Quote, that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, and that we may approve of the things that are excellent. God is praying that we will approve of excellent things. So before asking, does my life show signs of excellence, we're going to discover whether or not we even approve of excellence. And that begins with understanding what it really is. Now, this is neat. According to the passage, excellence has to do with that which makes us pleasing in the day of Messiah. Did you hear that? When you approve of excellence, you will bring pleasure to God in the day of Messiah, which is a euphemism for the day of judgment. And when I am approving of excellent things, you know what I'm doing? I am nodding my head at the very same things that God will nod at in the day of judgment. Wow. I'm sharing his perspective of what is excellent. Now, I'm asking, of course, would you dare to ask yourself, what are you approving in your life? What are you valuing? What are you giving consent to? What are you nodding at? Would you consider that an important question? It's very important. And the reason it's important, folks, is because there is coming a day of judgment. Now, you will not be judged for sin if Yeshua has been judged in your place. If by grace through faith you have yielded your life to the one who has given his life and burst through death, Yeshua, you will not face that judgment. But you will face another judgment. You'll find it in Romans chapter 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In those passages, it says, all will stand, to, talking to believers, all will stand before the judgment seat of Messiah. In 1 Corinthians 3, it says that each one's work will become manifest. Why? For the day of judgment will declare it. That's a judgment for believers according to their works. Guys, this is an important message. The question is, are you nodding at the very same things God will nod at in that day? Now, the great part is that you and I have the benefit of knowing that standard right now, today, because the kindness of God in speaking to us through his word and, and through his spirit and through his son, Yeshua, it's like being given the answers to the test before you even receive it. God has revealed it. So in the rest of our time, we're going to look at just a few things that God considers excellent. And in the back of our minds, asking, do I really approve of excellence according to God's standard. When he puts his dipstick in my heart, does it nod at the same things he'll nod at? Here's the first thing. The first thing that God considers excellent, being filled with the Spirit. Would you say it with me? Being filled with the Spirit. Some people are offended by that. And yet we're enjoined by Paul to be continually filled with the Spirit. Now, in Daniel chapter 5, the king of Babylon is hosting this huge drunk for all of his buddies and concubines when all of a sudden, a man's hand appears out of nowhere and writes a message on the palace wall. Man, I hate when that happens, don't you? <laughs> I mean, I've had kids writing on the wall. But. 
Anyway, the king freaks out because he can't read the writing on the wall. If, if you ever heard the phrase, you know, he couldn't read the writing on the wall. Well, that comes from Daniel chapter 5. The king freaks out, can't read and understand the writing on the wall, but his queen comforts him. This is Daniel chapter 5. And the queen says, hey, don't worry, king, because there's a guy in town, actually he's in prison, <laughs> in whom is, verse 12, an excellent spirit. Wow. And he will interpret the writing. So Daniel, the Jewish boy who was kidnapped from Judah and hauled all the way to Babylon during the captivity, he's brought before the king out of prison. Listen to the king's word in verse 14, Daniel chapter 5. King says, I've heard of you. I've heard that the Spirit of God is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Brothers and sisters, one of the things God deems excellent is the wisdom that comes from being filled with God's Spirit. We are not talking about earthly wisdom or academic wisdom, but the wisdom that only comes through the infilling of the Spirit of holiness. Now, does that meet with your approval? Now, don't glibly say yes. Will you validate and affirm and approve the business of being filled with God's Spirit? Or you disapprove? Do you disapprove? Because, guys, it's not always comfortable con or convenient to be filled with God's Spirit. Have you ever heard of people who are, being fil who are filled with themselves? You know, that's a theological truism. I was filled with myself in the 20s, in my 20s. I could not be filled with God's Spirit. Why? Because I was filled with myself. Some of us fill ourselves with other things. Foolish and selfish ambitions, rage, you know, lust, whatever. And when we are filled with something, God's Spirit will not fill us. In other words, do you really approve of this? Because it means being emptied of whatever is filling you right now. Fear. You may have to give up your empty religion that has been so safe and so comfortable and convenient. You may have to give up your self-will and your rights, your, your right to be comforted, your right to be happy, your right to be unhappy, by the way. Some people actually find life in unhappiness. Did you know that? Your right to be right, you have to be emptied of these things before the Spirit fills you. And that's uncomfortable. Being driven by the Ruach, the wind of God, the Spirit of God, the breath of God is very, very scary at times. I remember when I was in high school, my best friend David Rothman and I borrowed, well, actually we stole his father's um, sailboat. It was one of those little ones, a sunfish, is about 12 feet long. And we had, no, we had no idea of how to sail a boat, but we stole, borrowed this sunfish, and we took it to um, Tridelphia Lake, I think it was. Okay, so we're out there at the uh, lake, and, we, and he's at the rudder in the back, if that's the thing that you steer with. And I was at the sail, not knowing what to do with it. And so we're just kind of puttering along on Lake Tridelphia, and suddenly this wind kicks up. You know, when Jewish boys get in a boat, the gospel shows weird things happen, <laughs> you know? And that's what happened. So Scott and David, total novices, had no idea what we're doing. And this wind picks up, and, we're, and now we're, like, really afraid. And we're just skirting over the water, and water's somehow getting into the boat, and I'm screaming, and David's screaming, and suddenly David goes, Scott! I said, just be quiet, David, just hold the rudder. Scott, will you be quiet? He says, that's the problem, I can't hold the rudder. And I look back, he's holding the rudder <laughs> like this. It broke off, okay? I'm holding with all my might this sail. We rush into the, uh, the, the opposite uh, shore. 
the, the boat falls over, we fall over, our knees are trembling, we got up and say, let's do it again. <laughs> I mean, it was exciting. It was a wild ride, and we almost got killed. But wow, what a ride. When the breath of God fills your sails, dear ones, you're in for the ride of your life. But let me tell you, it's sometimes scary. Do you approve of this? Do you really approve? Or would you rather just sort of live life on a lake that's calm, no wind? God will let you. One thing he approves, one thing he loves, and one thing he calls excellent is being filled with his spirit. Here's the second thing. Discovering God's will from God's word. I'm in Romans chapter 2. The second thing which God... Well, he's, there's many things he deems excellent. We're only a touching a few. Discovering God's will from God's word, he says, that's excellent. I'm going to nod at that in the day of judgment. If I find that in your life, yeah, that's, I'm going to nod at that. That's good. Romans chapter 2, remember the context. God is in the process of bringing everybody in the world, everybody, Gentiles, Jews, moralists, everybody, onto level ground and proving that nobody is righteous, everybody is guilty in front of God apart from Mashiach Yeshua. Now, but listen to the statement he makes as he's correcting his Jewish readers. Again, Paul is writing, and he corrects some Jewish readers who have a, a weird idea about the law. Listen, Romans chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Paul says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest on Torah, and you make your boast in God, and you know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of Torah. Now, this is so interesting. Did you hear this? He is telling us in the midst of his fatherly discipline of the Jewish readers that this is an example of someone who approves of excellent things. Discovering God's will by being instructed from God's word. So, ladies and gentlemen, whenever I make a decision in life based on knowledge that I have gained from the Scriptures, I am approving of things that are excellent according to God's standard. Whenever I say to someone, and I say this often because we're, our company, our congregation is always sort of postmodern, millennial relativists. You know, this is, this is who we hang out with day after week after month after year in New Zealand. I often hear all kinds of interesting things. But when I say something like, yes, I really understand what you're saying, and, I, and to be honest with you, I shared your thoughts, but the Word of God says something different. Whenever I do that, I'm approving of excellence. I'm, I'm nodding my head at the same things that God will nod at in the day of judgment. By the way, has it ever occurred to you that every important decision you have to make in life, everything, whether it has to do with romance or investments, whether it has to do with business or hobbies, whether it has to do with parenting or spousing. Every decision you have to make in life has clear instruction from the Word of God by which you can make an excellent decision with integrity and confidence without wavering. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? You can't find a decision that God doesn't address in the Scriptures. You always have an opportunity to have an excellent choice. Example. A couple was referred to me many years ago for marital counseling when I was still leading Son of David. Now, that doesn't sound so unusual until you discover that she was a German Catholic and he was a Palestinian Muslim. <laughs> a Catholic, a Muslim, and a Jew, okay? 
It sounds like a, a recipe for a really bad joke or a really good war. All right. Anyway, the marriage was just hanging on by a thread when they came into our office, and she was already filing for divorce. But guess what? In the course of counseling, the love of God just captured this woman's heart. <laughs> I mean, she came alive in the Spirit of God. The Word of God was shaping her. And suddenly, her entire perspective on the marriage changed. God's Word was opening the eyes of her heart. She was approving the thing of things that are excellent. She was discovering the will of God through God's Word for her marriage. And where she was once consumed with bitterness for not getting what she felt she deserved, suddenly she was seeing her marriage for what it truly was, an institution for sinners, an invitation to experience the cross, an incarnation of a heavenly love affair between God and his bride. She read in 1 Corinthians 7 and in 1 Peter chapter 3 that if she would just dare to trust God for her marriage, God would use her as a pipeline for forgiveness and, and healing and holiness in her marriage. Do you know what she did? you know what this woman did? She tore up in front of me, she tore up her divorce papers as a way of loving and obeying the Messiah who was torn for her. She approved of what was excellent by discovering God's will through God's word. So what about you? Do you approve? And by that, I mean, are you really willing to allow the scriptures to dictate your values and your, your passions and your choices? Will you allow the word of God to direct your choice of friends and your choice of vocation, who you'll partner with in business, financial ethics, how to deal with conflicts, whom you marry? What does God deem excellent? Being filled with his spirit, discovering his will from his word, Third, God's power shining through our weakness. God's power shining through our weakness. God says that's excellent. He loves that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Yeshua the Messiah. But, he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, please hear me on this. There is a part of us that wants glory. Have you noticed that part? It's called flesh in the Bible. And it really wants God's glory. Now, God has already spoken to this issue when he said, I will not share my glory with anyone case closed. Only God is glorious. And the part of me which seeks glory for myself, which pursues excellence for the sake of bringing glory to me, God has absolutely no interest in that, but stick with me. God does want to display his glory through us. You know, we hear a lot about inherent sin. When's the last time you heard a message about your inherent glory? May I suggest that when you relate with the world around you, you remind people not just of their sin, but of their glory? that God has tucked something deep into them called the image of God, which merely by reason of being born, they bear. The image of God is glorious. It's hidden under a rubble of sin. But I think we need to, need to be reminded of that. Messiah in us, the hope of glory. Wow. Colossians 1.27. 
And that's precisely why he stuck us in earthen vessels. Earthen vessels have, by reason of their earthenness, you've heard this sermon, they have weaknesses, they have cracks. The older they get, the weaker they get, right, Rabbi? Never mind, forget it. Just go back to sleep. The older they get, the more the cracks show up, and God is saying, that's good, that's, that's exactly, that's excellent. That's exactly what I need to display the light of my glory, not yours. I love the cracks. And you know, in biblical times when the earth and clay pots got old and cracked, they didn't throw them away. No, on the contrary, by reason of forming those precious cracks and showing their weaknesses, they finally became fit for a more honorable task. A light was placed inside of them, and they were transformed to things of beauty, especially in the darkness. Beauty in the darkness as light poured out of every flaw. Brothers and sisters, God longs to display his excellent power through the frailty and flaws of our humanness. And that's why we have this treasure in earthen vessels, because it's crystal clear to everybody out there in the darkness that what is excellent about you and you and you and me is not us at all. It's merely coming through us from the inside. All we are are vessels and cracked ones at that. So listen, you crackpots. God approves of this. And if you're ever so blessed as to be apprehended with the Almighty, I'm talking about not only born again, but filled with the Spirit of God. If you are ever so blessed to have an, 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 an impact on the lives around you by reason of the Spirit of God pouring through you into their lives, you know what? The people whose lives you touch, they, they may forget your name. They may even forget your face. But when they think of your soul, who you are, their eyes well up with tears, their hearts burst with praise, and their lives are forever changed. That, God says, that's excellent. Do you approve of that? Final thing. One more excellent thing. Losing ambition to gain Messiah. Losing ambition to gain Messiah. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. What things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Messiah. But indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Messiah Yeshua, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Messiah. He says it's excellent to lose ambition to gain him. Now, it may be time to face a hard fact that we don't really believe that what God has for us is so much more satisfying than the carrot that our fleshy ambitions dangle in front of us. My flesh and yours refuses to embrace the fact that God is able to do, not only able, but willing to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or think. My flesh will have none of that. And so Paul, the rabbi and apostle, you know, he, he achieved his ambitions. Concerning the Torah, he says, I was blameless. But here's how he sums up the reward of those accomplishments. All of, his, all of his accomplishments, everything hanging on the wall, all those certificates and lauds from the world around him. He says, all of it is rubbish. Although you said it correctly, John, thank you. Dung. Dung. He points to all of his certificates on the wall, all of his merit awards, all of his trophies and ribbons, and he sums it up with, all, with one word, dung. My best accomplishments are stinking, disgusting, disease-infested dung compared to what I've gained with the excellence of simply knowing Hamashiach Yeshua. 
Now, listen, I'm not naive. And I realize that our culture has a name for someone who is emptied of ambition. They call him a loser. But look around your world and discover who the true losers are. People who have spent lifetimes pursuing and achieving self-glorifying ambitions and whose lives are miserable and, and meaningless and vain. The glory of their ambitions is rotting excrement. It is fertilizer for a dying planet. That's what they have achieved. And that's the promise of Scripture, and that's the experience of men and women who are seeking their own glory. Victoria, the Queen of England. She listened to one of her chaplains speak at Windsor on the subject, get this, on the subject of Messiah's second coming. Cool, huh? Queen Victoria listening to a sermon on the second coming. She was so moved, it's a true story, she was so moved by the message that she later said to a friend, her, her, her dearest friend, she said, oh how, oh, how I wish that the Lord would come during my lifetime. Now, the friend was surprised by this passion. And the friend said to the queen, Victoria, why does your majesty feel this earnest desire? And with all of her royal countenance lit up and with deep emotion, she replied, because I should so love to lay my crown at his feet. God deems it excellent when one empties herself of ambition to gain the Messiah. But what about you? Do you approve? In today's Haftarah, Micah declares that God has shown us what is good and what he requires of us. And in addition to doing justly and loving mercy, in addition to walking humbly with him, God has shown us what he deems excellent what he will not at at the day of judgment, being filled with his spirit, discovering God's will from God's word, God's power shining through our weakness, and finally losing ambition in order to gain him. Do you approve of this? Let's pray. How wise David was to pray that God would open his heart, reveal his heart to you, O oh Lord. Uh, sometimes my heart is so um, covered over with um, stuff that I don't even know what's in there. Thank you for giving me a new heart. Thank you for my life in Messiah, and for Messiah being my life and my Savior. And I, along with my brothers and sisters here, ask you, God, to show us areas where disapproved dipsticks have been lowered into our hearts and minds, standards which do not meet with your standards. Praise God that we don't have to perform well enough to gain your approval. Hallelujah. Yeshua performed perfectly. We get that, Father, and thank you. Thank you for giving him to us, for nailing him to this planet that we might be set free. But now with regard to the coming day of the judgment of our works, we ask you, God, to show us areas where we have become that frog in the kettle, just little bit by bit compromising what is excellent for what is less. And empower us to overcome any evil which the enemy is dangling in front of us and which may look juicy and good for a moment, but which, which will launch us to a, a life of misery without you. Reveal to us. And thank you for the fellowship of believers who, in our humble love for one another, might even reveal these things to one another. 
by simply and lovingly saying, I've noticed this in your life. Father, may we approve of those things that are excellent. May we bring pleasure to you. And may we be lights shining so brightly in this dark kingdom that others will follow the God whom we follow. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Um, I would encourage you um, to talk with Scott and Margie, find out a little bit more about their ministry in New Zealand. And this may sound funny, but for those of you who have known Scott for those 30 years, or maybe 20 or 10, if you see somebody brand new to Scott, I would ask you to give them preeminence. Let them find out about the ministry. There'll be plenty of time downstairs to catch up with old times. Would you stand with me as we close with the benediction?